Hello and welcome to Comedy in a Nutshell, a podcast with me, Mark Decano, in which I try to befuddle the Oxford English Dictionary with alternative definitions of the word comedy by asking those in the know what comedy means to them, and maybe come up with a more up-to-date definition of the word comedy, but probably not. I love talking to the people in comedy about comedy. If you like to hear what I have to say as much as I do, then please like, subscribe, rate, review and share the podcast. Thank you. My guest this episode is a former philosophy teacher turned philosophy joker. He's been variously described in reviews as ingenious, witty, positive, impressive, engaging and jaw-achingly funny. It's stand-up comedian Alex Farrow. If you're happy and good to go, we'll crack on. Let's do it. What what I can do is that thing that all stand-ups are very good at doing at the moment where they go, oh, I'll tell you a secret or you know, something I don't normally say. And then it'll, I'll say that every night to audiences all up and down the country. All that I love all that sort of parasocial stuff. Yeah. So, just, so uh, just for you and the audience, Mark, this is all a little secret for us. Nice. <laughs> so tell me, what was your route into comedy? How did you get started? I was... I, Recently become a school teacher, mm-hmm. and I think I was looking for a way to extend my youth. <laughs> I've been a very big fan of, I don't know, like a, a pint and a party. And I think that's very fun up until the age of about 21. And then you sort <laughs> of, you very quickly, if you're like a quote unquote young teacher, I started when I was about 22, 23. Mm. If you're a young teacher, you suddenly go from this relatively kind of unstructured, somewhat kind of hedonistic lifestyle to suddenly uh, having all these children that are your responsibility because you move from sort of child to parent very quickly. Mm. And I don't think I was kind of quite ready for that. And so I used to, my best friend, uh, Will, and I, I think we're looking for something in between the student life of going out to the union bar or whatever. And then, I don't know, being, I don't know, feeling like divorced dads before our time. And so, <laughs> We thought it would be a hilarious idea to pretend to be stand-up comedians. We did a uh, open mic night in London. I wasn't even living in London at the time. Um, and we're like, oh, that'll, that'll be fun. Yeah. Um, but purely for almost, you know, I feel guilty to say, through real no love of comedy on our part, just through pure, pure like sort of thrill. Mm. We were real sort of thrill seekers. Uh, like he went through a period of sort of taking sort of statues from. I don't know, places as when he was drunk and stuff like that. And so this was a sort of a, a more wholesome way of getting a, a thrill on a night out. And um, I didn't even write any material. I was like, oh, well, that would sort of be, that would make it too safe. So I sort of improvised <laughs> what I still believe to be one of the worst comedy sets that must have ever been performed at any sort of stage. Yeah. And that was all very sort of scary and stuff like that. <laughs> right. And then didn't really think about it for about a year. Yeah. And then sort of another year passes and uh, Will and I are like, oh, do you remember that time that we, you know, went up on stage with no no material? That was really scary. And then we're like, should we do it again? And we're like, nah, nah, we've done that now. <laughs> what we thought would be funny would be if we wrote really, um, I suppose, really unfunny comedy sets for each other. Right. And then we'd have to have to perform them for these, this, this poor, <laughs> unsuspecting sort of audience. Yeah. Uh, we're talking like really like sort of, whack whack and hack i think would be the right word for what we were supposed to be writing for each other yeah anyway i did my set and had a right old bomb um only one person laughing very loudly in the crowd was my friend will i mean like truly (laughs) we didn't get to see the sets before we went on stage so you had to sort of read out as was oh horrendous i gave will a briefcase full of all these props 
was kind of prop comedy type stuff. <laughs> anyway, like he had a, um, the first prop was a brick, for example, right. with a mobile phone taped to it and it had a big aerial on it that he pulled the aerial out. And basically I sort of gave him instructions over his brick phone about what to do. The twist of the story is, I know he absolutely crushes. He's to this day, one of the hardest, uh, like wins at a, at a gig I think I've ever seen. Anyway, so he comes off stage and he's being swamped by people. Being like, oh my God, that was so funny. He's like, you know, how long have you been going for? He's like, oh, it's just my second gig. And I'm like, oh, by the way, I, I wrote that. And people are like, yeah, sure, mate. Yeah, nice, I bet. Um, and so that made me want to do it, I think. Yeah. Um, a long, uh, maybe a long story, but um, it was a real, um, uh, an accident of being a yeah. sort of younger thrill seeker. But it's interesting, like your first two outings are kind of, experimental i mean that's got to be like oh yeah is that naivety or arrogance or what, where does that come from just sort of going oh let's just throw away any possible conceit any rules or anything for any <laughs> new comedian and sometimes I, I you know i do little mentor type things with newer comics or writing sessions with angel comedy yeah. um i always say you are at your most creative when you're just starting like write down like everything because you don't you you've not you're not being trapped by the expectations of the format. You're not being trapped by the expectations of needing to be like paid or needing to be booked again. There is, there's a real like, you get it with um, students sometimes. Right. You get a real a creativity, this is almost certainly a word of it, but you get a creativity that comes from not knowing. It's like a sort of an inverse bell curve or something like that. Like your creativity and skill is not always a, like a continuous mm. line. You're often much more creative before you really know anything about the format mm. that you're dealing with. Uh, but then you don't have any of the skills to uh, polish and refrain it, right? So you have to sort of write down everything. I used to do all sorts of mad stuff. I used to take a toaster on stage. <laughs> I, um, I had like I'd feed audience sort of jam and stuff like that. Really different uh, <laughs> to like Mr. Philosophy, which is the Alex Farrow brand these days. Yeah. Um, although maybe I'll bring the toast a bit back. I mean, it was a real, it was a real, it was dusty. <laughs> you get all breadcrumbs of every gig that you went to. So I have to bring a dustpan and brush everywhere. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I imagine it's lots of comics who, I don't know, I wonder who the audience for this is. Um, but if it is comics listening and you are I think mostly. a newer, yeah, yeah and you're a newer comic, unsolicited advice from Alex Farrow <laughs> is were never more creative than in your first few months or times doing it. Yeah. Like, like harvest that. Do I really do it? Yeah. So when did your, your comedy style switch from this creativity to being the uh, being a hack <laughs> <laughs> to being the uh, philosophy guy? Um, I toast. suppose it's sort of it, rather than Mr. Toast. Yeah. I tell you, you, you've got to be careful what your best bit is. Like I went through a big phase of um, talking about butts. I had a bit about how that was really, you know, like how butts predicted um, recessions and stuff like that. Like well, it was supposed yeah. to be about, you know, the, the skirt theory <laughs> yeah. of, uh, you know, how people, you know, it was an inversion of that. But you, songs about big butts could also predict uh, recessions was the was the bit. Um, uh, perfectly serviceable. It's not in the routine anymore. But um Anyway, it would often go very well. Yeah. And people would be like, they'd sort of see you at the end of the gig or at another gig. And they'd be like, oh, it's big butt guy. Oh, it's butt man. <laughs> and so whatever you do, you want to be careful because people remember you by your bits to coin a phrase that I didn't quite intend. But you really, yeah, 
it's nice to be known as philosophy guy rather than <laughs> butt man. Um, but um, I suppose I suppose those two things evolved together. Uh, like used to, you know, studied philosophy, a big philosophy head. I suppose yeah. really enjoy that sort of stuff. I, th I think the two really like overlap. I think I mean, I th loads of us want to believe really romantically that it's there's something kind of philosophical in what we do, right? When you look at the world in a different way, mm. like, and a, you know, a philosopher looks at the world and sees absurdity um, and wants to explain it. Uh, you know, a comedian looks at a world full of absurdity and wants to just leave it and share it, right. um, leave the absurdity sort of intact. Mm. But there's like a double mode of attack, I think sometimes when you're looking at a concept, mm. like very occasionally I'll be, you'll, you know, I don't know if you've ever done that morning pages thing where you wake up in the morning really early and you just sort of free write for a while. Lots of comedians do it as a way of generating material. Yeah. I will find that if I'm not careful, I don't need more structured prompts, but I end up writing that like, awful, atrocious, like philosophy that ceases to have any gag in it. Um, <laughs> Cause it's sort of a surprising way of looking at the world. And I'm very grumpy when I wake up in the morning. So I write these very moody sort of essays about, yeah. oh, I don't know, uh, how you can't trust anything or something like that and like then i have a coffee and i'm like oh i hate all that but i think there's something very natural about uh asking what's the deal with that yeah uh i think a lot of your early philosophers are uh yeah seinfeld but without the um uh <laughs> without the annoying uptick in the end of sentences yeah um yeah i mean so it's sort of why did philosophy emerge into it uh sort of you are the thing that you should talk about on stage is what you what you know mm -hmm. we do about it. and like look no one knows if anybody tells you they're good at philosophy they'll look like they're a liar it's too hard right there's it's not possible to be good at it in the sense that like the questions have been the same for two thousand years like it's it's not it's yeah. not one cannot be good at it really it's sort of almost anti um <laughs> what it is i think you know if you yeah. if you're a philosopher and you say oh but i've got all the answers you're like you've not listened to the questions but um <laughs> philosophy is is easy isn't it it's just asking questions and not coming up with the answers that's that's philosophy wow well, yeah i mean, I mean so... that's it right there <laughs> bang straight away bang nailed it we're all philosophers aren't we there's another one nailed it's it done. it's easy <laughs> i think i think it's in the heart I, I sort of care about this like a lot in the sense that um uh, the risk with associating something as uh, universal as comedy with something that is often considered very elitist philosophy. Mm -hmm. I'm very wary of that. Like, I really believe that everybody does it all the time. Mm -hmm. Like when you when you ask why about all sorts of fundamentals, about why, why you're doing your job or why you love your partner or like why the government is the way that it is, like, I think there is something really universal about that, which uh, kind of upsets me sometimes when um, we think of philosophy as being, I don't know, either associated with universities in a way that it doesn't have to be in any way, shape or form, or like occasionally you get it at a gig. Right. Occasionally, like somebody will, uh, so, sort of indirectly, you'll be having a pint afterwards. It's very rarely a comic, but um, often it's like an audience member. Mm -hmm. They'll say things like, oh, why do you talk about all that stuff? As though it's like not a topic for conversation. Um, big butts. <laughs> and like, I, I really take great pride in nobody. If, you were, if you've come to see an Alex Farrow show or you see an Alex Farrow set, mm. like you didn't need to do any reading beforehand. 
that sounds like a drag. <laughs> like I would hate for it to be like, I don't know, almost like an in-group thing. Like we all know Concept X or we've all read this writer right. and therefore we can get this stuff. I think what makes it hard, what we do as a comedian is you have to immediately construct shared experience. Hmm. I think the audience is sort of responding in this parasocial relationship where it's almost like a, you've got to create a friend, like this uh, multitude becomes a singularity, right? Yeah. You need all these kind of ways to make them feel in that friendship bond with you. Um, so it wouldn't even work really if you were telling them things that were too far alien to them. Yeah. You can explain new things. I think we shouldn't, I think we shouldn't talk down to an audience either. I think like, uh, you know, you'd have spoken to Chelsea Burtby, I know, who has loads of philosophy in her set as well. Mm -hmm. We'll be doing that stuff Friday, Saturday nights in the club. Like, that's where it should be. It's not just for Edinburgh Fringe. It's not just for college towns. It's yeah. really is for everyone. I care, like, a huge amount um, about that. Yeah. Um, in a way that I have no particular like punchline for. <laughs> um, maybe it's maybe it's because maybe it's the school teacher thing. Maybe it's like the number of times you'll have a super smart kid, right? Um, but for whatever reason, they feel like like traditionally named academic topics, whether it's like philosophy or science or math, is just in some way like not for them. Yeah. Like I don't really always know where it comes from. I think sometimes uh, we tell youngsters that there's something like pretentious or like not right about traditional academia. I don't really fully know where it comes from, mm. but it kind of emerges out of every generation, almost that it's almost like maybe like classist or something right. like that, that this stuff shouldn't, is only for some people. And we, I, I don't know, I don't, I need to analyze that more off a podcast really, but <laughs> like I, I dislike the idea that traditionally academic topics are not for everyone. Mm. They are, absolutely. If you're putting together a, a set or a show, do you begin with what you want to impart? Like maybe it'd be knowledge or maybe it'd be uh, just to get people to ask a question or do you start with the jokes and try and weave them into a narrative? I do both. Right. Um, it's a slightly boring answer. Um, <laughs> uh, I think of, uh, I think of it like, I don't know. Well, I suppose the, the way that it's sometimes very like topic driven is occasionally I will do, um, like thematic sets mm. here in Oxford, the Natural History Museum uh, books, books me in uh, to write something about their exhibition. Yeah. So, um, ha you know, I have lots of stuff on bacteria, for example. Yeah. Uh, I tell you what, it's very hard to do observational material about something microscopic, but <laughs> it's nice to be like challenged um, to do that. And so you will be, you'll start with a concept, you'll, you know, you walk around the exhibition, you'll like hmm. buy a book, by which I mean, listen to a podcast yeah. <laughs> um, about, the, about the topic that you want to do. Like, who reads anymore? Nobody reads anything. We will have it sort of spoken to you in your ear. And what sort of, uh, yeah, what sort of person, if you, you know, if you were a Roman emperor, you would have had everything read to you by some poor sort of servant of yours. And now we have this electronic servant to read to us. I yeah. think it's superior, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, so sometimes you get like I'm doing um, something for the Internet Institute of LSE. They want me to, they've asked me to write something about AI again. I keep getting lots of AI sort of commissions, which is nice. Right. But, um, uh, and so that comes from, I don't know, kind of an emerging, almost kind of like outreach type educational yeah. system of uh, like public speaking, I suppose. Um, people like the idea of introducing a conference with a stand up comic. 
um, and mixing comedy and education together. And so sometimes you, mm. you'll write something bespoke for that. Um, I've run a, a compilation show in London these days, uh, only recently taking it over from Charlie Duncan Safri called Stand Up Philosophy, yep. where that will be thematically done. So you get three or four comics and, you know, like comedians are speaking about kind of love, justice, identity all the time. So you'll take that as a concept mm. and then um, I will sort of interview them about the sort of the philosopher behind the jokes, right? Because there's so many things that are sort of uh, a comedian will only be semi-consciously like doing in their sets. Mm. And so I will write a bit about the kind of the topic that they're working on. Mm. Um, but most of the time something funny happens and you're like, oh, great. I will uh, stick that in and reverse engineer the hell out of that to yeah. make it kind of fit. <laughs> um, uh, starting from the bottom up, as it were. If we were referring back yeah. to see, sets about big butts. Callback, see, clever. <laughs> I tell you, the, a callback is one of those things that is so basic for a comedian, but so mind-blowing for an audience member. Yeah, Audiences love to feel smart, and <laughs> a callback is just like, you give the give the people what they want. Callbacks are bread and circuses for the masses. <laughs> they're really, they're really, they're really easy to do. You just say the same thing later on, but it makes it, makes it look like you're... I know, sort of some sort of divine genius. And it's other oh, thing that he said at the beginning was all headed back to this point. It's like, no, it's not. You just found a, a way to say the word bum again twice or something. I don't know. Yeah. But... <laughs> um, I like the idea of doing philosophical talks or structuring talks around the idea of AI, which is, of course, a way of getting machines to do your thinking for you. So that's a, that's an interesting direction. Where do you start with that, or do you start in that? Oh, in, well, in terms of writing about AI, as in where do I find yeah. it funny, or what do I like believe about uh, artificial intelligence? Well, how do you how do you start addressing uh, making observations about a thing that is observing you? Oh, very nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, who who looks at who? Um, Thank you, and I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> over and out from Mark. Um, <laughs> Often with something uh, like AI, I try and have, I, try, I start more with the opinion first. And so, right. um, and so if the opinion is about, I mean, like so many white collar jobs are like currently just being absolutely destroyed by AI. It will be, right. um, yeah, it's true. It's so, so important, like what's going on and so how to deal with that and all that sort of stuff. And so you immediately like, you think, right, well, what's the funny angle on that? Like the first funny angle is like, good. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> like, do you know, do you know what nobody wants? Estate agents. They can go off, they go, it's AI that, you know, all that sort of stuff you can do quite quickly. Yeah. And you can take what would be very kind of like universal butts of jokes about how nobody likes estate agents. And then you can start to sort of weave back like, well, how do you re-engineer work? How do you think about work in a way that is both funny and kind of interesting? My favorite, uh, bit to do at the moment is a little set that's supposed to be about disobedience mm. you know you get a whole crowd to cheer if they believe in the in the power of disobedience and then most of them cheer and you're well if you didn't cheer like well done yeah. you know that's <laughs> most disobedient thing you could have done um and then you sort of gently give them the sort of a fact about how difficult um it is to engineer true creativity out of a of an ai because an ai can never really disobey um, it's almost by definition something you can't program into a machine. We don't really know how human beings have disobedience or whatever, or where they get that freedom to disobey from. Yeah. It's sort of a mystery to us, but we believe that it's real. 
and then my favorite bit is then to go but if disobedience is intelligence the wisest most intelligent computer algorithm for me is microsoft office word specifically it's formatting function <laughs> and then um i have a big rant about how that'll never do what you want it to do and i sort of uh yeah, yeah. Then sort of conclude that uh, Clippy is, of course, our new AI overlord. Where's he gone? Well, <laughs> Bill Gates is hidden in a secret island or whatever. Anyway, <laughs> without doing the rant, maybe it takes a lot of stuff away. But it, that's just an observational bit about mm. uh, poor technological interactions, right? It feels very sort of Rod Gilbert in a way, yeah. um, having a rant and rave about that. And so you can have the opinions and then you illustrate them with the observational material or... Um, Sometimes you sometimes you start with facts. So uh, you have a have a bit about B.F. Skinner, who's um, used by sort of Californians as a way of explaining how machines not only behave as though they think but do think. Mm -hmm. And so you then like you almost sort of satirise the views, uh, and so you can start kind of that way as well. Um, I quite like that bit, but it's weird doing bits on a podcast, isn't it? <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do my whole B.F. Skinner bit, uh, but. If people would like to see my BF skin a bit, they can follow Alex Farah comedy on YouTube. Um, do do like and subscribe. And I mean, why why would that be interesting? Why would this be interesting to other comics? And then you can sort of do it both ways, mm. um, a bit like an AI, right? So most AI is uh, bottom up, right? It doesn't really know what the meaning would be until the meaning is transposed on it at the end. It has all these examples, let's say, of like funny things um, that sort of work, right. and then. Sort of after a sort of attritioning that it can find a purpose for them or whatever yeah. so you can find the purpose for your bits almost like a black box ai eventually by saying and using them enough it's like oh this bit's about that right which is always very fun <laughs> what about when you're performing to like you said uh, if you're performing at the museum and you're doing a set on uh bacteria or what have you mm -hmm. i mean that's that's niche. Well, you'd say it's niche. I mean, that's a very specific audience. Oh, I suppose the audience, the audience is niche. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, how you how you signal a show does change um, the audience that you get. Mm. I think that uh, doing well at comedy starts before the gig. I would almost say, like almost like a war, that most of the battle is won before you're arranged on the field. And so, like, this is particularly true at Edinburgh Fringe. So <laughs> yeah. if you have signaled to your audience correctly what they're getting and they've read about it and heard about it and want that, it's almost easy. I mean, no, it's never easy to do or whatever, but, like, if you have got an audience that want what you are giving, then it's so it's so much better one of um a, a great example of this uh this year uh just gonna name drop my friends who i think are great but williamson yeah it's a really funny comic um he uh did some really nice signaling about who he is as a performer through his title so his show title this year i think was uh 200 iq plus audience only brackets no munters yeah. <laughs> now whatever you wh whatever you think about the type of comedy you're into or whatever like you get a an idea of what that performer is from that and in the copy he just basically i think had such a good time this year because his audience would be like up for a, a hyper arrogant persona mm. um and with sort of like kind of a reverent terminology with you know a touch of edge into it like you know what you're getting slightly sort of edgy 
uh, like playful, irreverent comedian there. Yeah. Whereas, like, I think in previous years, the title hadn't really conveyed that quite as well. And like, I'm sure you've heard this before, but like, we don't signal what sort of comedy we're doing well enough as comedians, like at all. The number of times, you know, you'll get a flyer in Edinburgh and it's John Smith's funny hour. Yeah. And you're like, oh, great. What, what kind of what kind of comedy is this, John Smith? And he'd be like, oh, it's the funny stuff. You'd never get that with like a, a, like a music night, for example. Yeah. Like, so I'll come to my music night and you'll be like, oh, what's the music? And the person's like, oh, it's the stuff that you really like listening to. It's the kind of music that's good. You know, you'd be like, oh, but, you know, is it metal or is it jazz? And, you know, people are like, you know, they'll be like, oh, it's everything. And he'd be like, but is it though? And so um, when you were signaling, hello, do you want to come on a Friday night to a museum to listen to um, observational routines about bacteria? That is an incredibly fun gig to do because those people have self-selected for that. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's, it's also such a magic trick to see an hour of stuff that's just on bacteria. You get like, I did a whole show about bats once. Um, and like it just gets it just gets insanely silly. Like by by like the twenty like by the twentieth minute that you're talking about bats, it's like he's still talking about bats. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's just funny. The same with bacteria. It's just it's just impressive. Um, if you are as a comic, if you can chain your material, if you can theme material, you you build a build a world. You build a world that your audience are transported to. Yeah. I think I've got great respect for like true one-liner comics who, where each joke is a new world each time. Mm. Joke one, stop. Joke two, stop. Joke three, stop. Yeah. Whereas like comedians like Jamie D'Souza will weave those one-liners into a, a narrative such that you, you're lost in the narrative or like, um, yeah, anything that you can do to transport that audience away from thinking, oh, do I need another drink? Or oh, I'm a bit hungry actually, or the chair's not very comfortable. Like you need to take them mm. out of all that stuff and into your universe and you need to hold them in that universe. So the more you can theme material, mm. like the, the better in many ways. Yeah. Um, there's always massive exceptions to that. Like, as I say, all the fantastic one-liner comics who can start a new world each time. Yeah. Do, do you have like a, a, a set sort of theory going in? So if someone says, hey, come down to our, our event and we want you to talk about X, is it kind of a meat grinder in terms of the, you know, the joke, the joke factory just changes <laughs> that word. Yeah. Making yeah. the sausage. <laughs> Sometimes when you're making the sausage, you're reusing offcuts that probably shouldn't be reused, you know? So, um, it depends how, we, how long I have to prepare for the, uh, prepare, prepare yeah. for the show. If, if I'm being really brutal, God, how much that that's paying as well. <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, if, um, you know, some of these things can be very well paid, lots of it, you're doing more, much more for the love of it. Mm. Um, and so that sort of how much you pay kind of signals the quality of the, of the meat. <laughs> well, that's gross, <laughs> isn't it? Um, but yeah, sometimes you're reusing and recycling a lot of stuff. And mm. so there's different meanings that can be interpreted onto, uh, yeah. onto already existing gags. Um, like doing three years of a philosophy degree and then some postgraduate stuff basically you know i've learned to you know rehash opinions about stuff very very well yeah. i think that's all yeah almost what all my life has been working towards <laughs> like <laughs> writing for one of a better word an essay yeah. um that answers a question and if the question is what do you think 
about AI or what do you think about evolution or God, what else have I done? Oh, what do you think about cartoon museums, art exhibition, um, about Dardarist themes? You're like, oh my God, right. Like, okay, I can do that. Um, there's so much of the school system is broken in that way that we mm. test this very like word heavy sort of essay based form of thinking that um which you know does have utility outside of school uh is rarely so specifically tailored to what i do <laughs> but um yeah there should be far more things that we test students on or educate them in, in doing particularly in like the sciences science lessons are still and i remember i was amazed by it when i was helping out and um yeah. you cover all sorts of stuff as a teacher and i'm like this this whole gcse curriculum is a series of facts that you must learn like where's the logic where's the analysis where is the self-discovery for from things from first principles uh like the whole chemistry curriculum felt like well here are the answers mm. memorize them which yeah. it felt very um yeah very limiting uh yeah that's not i don't think that's the great power of the scientific method anyway but. <laughs> as well as stand-up philosophy you do stand-up science do you take science into philosophy and philosophy into science is there a, a venn diagram that that draws it if there if there is money to be made <laughs> and a good time to be had from combining the word stand-up uh with another thing alex farrow is the writer performer for it so like stand-up science i think is uh less close uh i think the concept isn't quite as exciting as stand-up philosophy because i think there's something really interesting about as i say what stand-ups do mm. which is semi kind of philosophical when you because you're deconstructing concepts yes so the, the process what is philosophy it's taking often things that we already like know or that we think we know and deconstructing them mm. Whereas something like stand-up science is much more a case of like here are some wonderful things about the world. Um, like here's a fact, and now let's think about what's funny about it in a way that uh if stand-up uses the philosophical method, I'm not entirely sure stand-up uses the scientific method. So the scientific method is almost kind of reverse in structure. So if uh, it's supposed to be, I don't think it ever really is this, but it's supposed to be, you, you know, you the scientist goes out into the world and sees a hundred ducks and goes, mm, well, what do we, what do we learn about duck behavior from these a hundred things? Right. That's sort of supposed to be the standard, uh, the scientific method. Mm -hmm. Whereas a philosopher is like, what is a duck? <laughs> <laughs> we, it starts with like, we already know what a duck is. Uh, but like, is a duck always something that flies is a duck, something that must have a beak. You know, if a duck is something that must have a beak is a duck build platypus. A duck well probably not and it'll you know that's a satire of the philosophical method but um i think one is much closer to the process of stand-up than the other mm -hmm. although stand-up science i think has got a much wider appeal i think that um partly because uh it's done so poorly in the national curriculum Right. And this is not to uh criticize any individual teacher by the way i think teachers of science are some of the uh, most inspiring people like around but like it's like science should be thrilling it should yes. be exciting uh to like read and consume it and sort of everybody everybody kind of knows that it's not 
it's why there's such demand for pop science books. It's why the popular science section of a library is much, much bigger. Um, it's why it's so difficult. It's why you have get into STEM type uh, things, because there's a shortage, particularly of particular groups going into like STEM, science, technology, engineering and stuff. Um, and why? Because we present it in a really dry way. Yeah. And it's like, oh, so to get around that, I think people are people are like, yeah, we like we know, we know that, you know, if you're if you're not interested in science or philosophy, it's like, well, that is reality. Like, <laughs> yeah. how can how can we make reality boring? And so somehow if we are presenting scientific stuff, sometimes it's like, well, we've made the universe uninteresting and that is a disaster. Yeah. As a, as a philosophical disaster, that is, you know, you know, why live? <laughs> why, <laughs> why live if there is nothing interesting in the universe? Um, and so I think there's a real demand for uh, an excitement for comics, you know, or charismatic individuals talking ab about um, things that are interesting in that matter. Yeah. And by making something interesting, you're halfway to making it funny anyway. Mm. And so, yeah, a big, uh, big believer in that. And this is a project, I yeah. think. So speaking of um, reality uh, becoming uninteresting. <laughs> On the subject of reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can we bring this back down to earth? <laughs> in terms of um, reality being uninteresting, how was your lockdown experience in comedy terms? Did you do Zoom gigs? Did you take time out? Did you write copiously? Um, well, so there was the period where very little happened. Mm -hmm. um, there was that period where... Do you remember, maybe this was just me, but I'm pretty sure for a long time, everybody thought this was going to be two weeks. Mm. There was like a, a revolving time was like, oh, it'll be another two weeks, it'll be another two weeks, it'll be another two weeks. And then you were like, oh, it was, well, yeah. I, this feels like more than this. Um, during, the, like, during the initial uh, like lockdown itself, yeah. I was a, a full-time live performer at that stage. And so all my work went. Mm. Um, and I never really understood, actually, you sort of something, you know, you read history textbooks and you'll, um, you know, you'll hear about uh, like the Great Depression or times of economic unrest and somebody will lose their work and they'll be in despair. Yeah. I never really sort of understood that. Um, I, I always knew, you know, in your head, oh, that would be a bad thing. Yeah. But when people in the deindustrialization of the north of England, for example, when people were like, but oh, but I am a miner. I, this is this is what they do, and, they, and somebody when they closes the mine, they go into great despair. Mm. Um, like I, I understood that. Like I really turned on myself. I was like, oh, what, what an idiot! Oh, you you idiot, Alex. Of course you can't do this. You can't. You can. You could never be a comedian for a living. Like obviously, obviously, this could never be something that like continued. Mm. Um, and it was a really interesting moment where I was like, ah, I understand what I read about in sort of history lessons yeah. and something about the toxicity of how we define ourselves for our work rather than to our families or our creative projects mm. and so that was like a big lesson very quickly and then very quickly i threw myself into all the ways kind of around it and so at the comedy club i run jericho comedy were um, actually if in a really bleak twist turned out to be uh in its most successful year from that summer of 2020 to 2021 Jericho Comedy was very busy with drive-in shows. Mm -hmm. It was one of the only comedy clubs running for uh, at least 
at least a month. Yeah. I remember my first show uh, was with the good people of Suzuki. <laughs> it would have been, I think, probably one of the first live events after that initial proper, like, I suppose all the lockdowns were proper, but the, the big first first one. Yeah. It was in Birmingham Airport. Yeah. And we, <laughs> I, we still weren't supposed to be face-to-face with anybody. Yeah. And so it was all contactless. I came into Birmingham City Airport. Uh, there was a big stage with an enormous screen, and there were all these cars. Um, would have been nearly a thousand, I think, a huge venue, inverted commas. Mm. And uh, I was directed via phone to where I would be performing on this stage. And then I heard my voice echoing out into this car park to silence, complete <laughs> silence, not, not, having, not having seen uh, a human being at this place, doing 20 minutes of just stuff about the postman to a car park yeah. full of people is identical just to screaming into a car park full of just cars. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was, there was a, a moment in the middle of it where I just wanted to be like, get, get out of your cars. I need, I need to know you're here. Yeah. I need to know that I've not gone like insane. It was <laughs> really weird, really, really, really weird. And then later on, people were like, you know, learning that stand-up requires that sense of conversation, right? Stand-up yeah. is a monologue disguised as a dialogue, right? And so you need that uh, second half of what you do, otherwise it ceases to exist, yes. right? And so whether it was a Zoom show or a drive-in show, you need to simulate dialogue even when it's not there. And so increasingly, like, bizarre, people would be like, you know, be like, do you want it filthier? And people would be putting their windscreen wipers on. <laughs> or, like, you know, if you're loving it, stick the hazards on. And, you know, and then, obviously, people start honking and stuff. It was like doing stand-up in a traffic jam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there's a reason the drive-in shows didn't, like, catch on. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of talk, I think, uh, certainly after the first few months being like, oh, you know, in outdoor shows, there'll be something that really, why don't we do those? And, <laughs> you know, there's a reason why stand-up works a little bit better indoors, for sure. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, creativity is uh, often turboed or caused by, like, restrictions. Mm -hmm. And so if you're th sometimes, like, if you are thinking of how to write a bit, you know, it's often um, if you're writing a comedy character in a sitcom, for example, it's like the restriction of that character is what produces the jokes. Mm. It's like they could have any belief or thought, but if they are a petty individual, well, that's the restriction. Yeah. And so actually it's kind of rules that ironically are required for the freedom of creativity. And so having um, those restrictions mm -hmm. um, sort of forced uh, a lot of people to be very creative did really like very like inspiring very cool things a lot of cool podcasts mm -hmm. so it came out um and i was very disappointed when people got a bit snobby about it i think people were like oh not another podcast yeah. and i remember being like why not great yeah maybe it's got an audience of two people well, well brilliant like brilliant for that person finding an audience of two people mm. if those two people love what that is um yeah great more more, 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 more. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and Nisha as well. Mm. I mean, that's the great gift of the digital age, isn't it? That um, yeah. actually to find your audience to be niche is actually better 
like all you need is what like a, a couple of hundred people globally to be into your thing yeah. uh and then that's almost like i don't know if they all give you a, a tenner a month yeah. i mean that's that's a great <laughs> living you know what i mean um and so uh there's still um so much room for uh becoming more more niche more more specific this growth room you know sometimes i don't know where well, maybe you don't pick this up but there's a, a real insecurity amongst comedians about um where our place will be in the future for it and because it's so so many people start it every year mm -hmm. and stuff like that i think there is enormous growth room for um people to be like humorous um and we have to be like creative in what we do yeah. what we talk about how we talk about it how we present it and how we reach audiences yeah. i really think we're in a like a golden age a golden age for uh, reaching audiences through this creative medium um I, like, I hope it continues but like i'm certain that with hindsight we'll look at this time as being a very positive one mm. for creativity like access as well it's very unfashionable to say that access is good <laughs> in the stand-up comedy world because we can do so much more um for it but like the the old gatekeepers are like, worried uh about where their place in things are when the, you have great access to an audience via this device the mobile phone mm. that is currently not being gatekept the great disruptors you know these social media tech companies yeah. you know it almost feels like a gold rush sometimes it's like there were audiences to be had and captured mm -hmm. um should we want to and it, almost everybody's got the mobile phone yeah it's open it's open to everyone those people who sell out the fringe it's almost kind of reversed the fringe some people in the past would go to the fringe to find the audience mm. now you've got this kind of reverse system where you found your audience through this exceptionally democratic meme generating access device and then you can capture that yeah. in edinburgh ideally through something like the free fringe which is an incredible thing that not every like festival around the world has like it's not melbourne it's not montreal yeah. i think we can um do so much more for access at these things but we shouldn't be shy about talking about how excellent a handful of things are right now because mm. we don't empower people by saying how impossible it is yeah it's interesting that uh, what you're talking about, new comedians, so many new comedians starting up. And there's a mm -hmm. conversation I was having about the statistics, at least it was true a few years ago. I don't know if it's been affected by the pandemic, but I think about 60% of comedians drop out after within three years. Oh, really? Up. Yeah. Um, but also now you've got newer comics are coming out, but that's because people who weren't able to or weren't in a position to perform comedy now can. Interesting. Because obviously they've been restricted by race or gender or you know, they are now have new voices, but then that means they have different source materials. They're talking about things that other comics yes, are talking yeah, about. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. you know, maybe there are new comics coming in, but they are comics that are saying things different to what comics oh, have gone time. before. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I mean, what's what the fun game of stand up comedy is like, <laughs> or, or comedy in general, actually, is how quickly like tastes change. Hmm. I mean, it's true, it, like to, to watch some stuff from a few decades ago it can be really like 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> even even stuff that you consumed as a younger person, right? You'd be like, oh my god. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, what? <laughs> Trust me, I grew up in the seventies. But um, and it's it's not just about sort of like the morality of of stuff and how it tastes on that sort of kind of move and change, yeah. but like the, the the simplicity versus the complexity. Yeah. Um, like it just it it just changes, yeah. and so uh, new people coming in tend to be like better and that sort of stuff. Mm. I mean, I've also, I can't help but feel like, um, so I've listened to a few of these podcast episodes uh, and one thing that uh, happens on this one as well as on so many comedy podcasts mm. is that the word comedy and stand-up are used interchangeably mm. in a way that like uh, is to do with how dominant stand-up is at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I reckon there's no reason why stand-up will continue to have the dominance that it does. Uh, both on things like Netflix or um, the live scene, uh, particularly because the majority of comedy probably consumed at the moment is probably on a form of social media, almost certainly in terms of views on something like TikTok. Yeah. And the majority of that is sketch, solo sketch, most of the time. Yeah. But like live sketch performance has been you know, out of fashion since, oh, I don't know, like you think of kind of Monty Python in the sort of the 70s, maybe 80s, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But people are consuming this video format sketch stuff. And then they often then go to see a live performer do a slightly different medium, uh, or very different medium in some cases, stand up. And you, uh, you know, often that works and it's really good. A lot of the time, uh, you know, I won't mention any names, but there's a handful of people I know who are very, who've got these big followings from social media. Mm -hmm. And they'll pop their head around the curtain and we'll just be like, oh, no. And I remember saying to this particular individual and they went, oh, no, I was like, what's going on? And she was just like, they're here. I'm like, well, who? Who's here? And she just went, my, my fans. And, and one of the things that she finds so difficult, this particular uh, TikTok star, is that her TikTok is sketch and very different um, to her stand-up. Yeah. And it's... They've come for for her, and she's being her through this different medium. Yes, but they're like, well, why aren't you? Why aren't you dancing? Why aren't you doing that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I won't say too much before I don't know <laughs> this person sort of identified, but um, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. What was I saying about this? Oh, the changing of things, right? Like, will will the next generation of funny performers be much more sketch based? Yeah. Uh, like I know Adam Flood, for example, is really good at doing something very similar on his live performance to uh, what's been done in his TikToks, where he'll use a lot of voice modulation and like will move seamlessly between stand up and slightly more sketchy bits. Mm. And I'm like, oh, that's how it starts. Yeah. <laughs> and so like uh, maybe in like five years time, I don't know, you know, we'll be thinking like, oh, do you remember when everybody was doing stand up mm. and it got a bit like, uh, I don't know, cliche, yeah. perhaps. Well, like some of the new comics that I've seen coming out in the last year, uh, in terms of Edinburgh debuts, is um, people like Kathy Manura, Lorna Rose Treen, who are oh, doing yes. characters. Yeah, 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 yeah. It started, Mark. It started. <laughs> the change has started. I need to get the toasters back out and do a do a character. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> But also, as again, it's interesting. You talk about the difference between what you see on the social media and what you, or, or indeed on television, and what you see live. Uh, and the example that sprung to mind then was um, John Kearns, 
who uh, yes. obviously yeah. got a whole new uh, group of people who became interested in John Kearns because of his appearance on Taskmaster. But if you've ever seen him perform live, <laughs> those are two very yeah, different yeah, yeah. things. And of course, the social media, again, the uh, advent of new technology means that you can do things that you can't do on stage. So talking about Edinburgh shows, as we, we alluded to a little bit earlier on, how is your festival experience and how has it changed? I, I love uh, Edinburgh Festival. I'm a enormous advocate of the free fringe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, it's an incredible way for people to access that festival without so much of the risk that comes with other spaces. I've been doing that for a long time now, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of the benefits of being a teacher is you can sort of you get your August off <laughs> and so you can like you can come you know you, you're doing you know teacher prep in the day and then going wild by night you know <laughs> that kind of stuff um yeah I've built up a nice little audience in the fringe which is really lovely mm. are you you know they come back to see where's Alex at in his life you know it's really <laughs> like um something's very something's very moving particularly with the free fringe when you can have that pay what you want model yeah. to reserve a seat mm um and you know you give all the options from uh like i think i do a five to 12 pound 50 or something like that and the number of people who uh will go for that 12 pound 50 when they really don't have to is um yeah is really when you when you stop and think sometimes it's like oh that is that is somebody who wants you to keep doing what you're doing um and that is really 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 nice um very yeah i don't use the word moving lightly but Mm -hmm. Because uh, you often then you don't really get to thank them properly. You know, you do at the end of the show, but you're like, oh, but that's so, yeah, such a nice uh, thing. Mm. And, you know, I sell out a medium sized room on the free fringe these days. Uh, <laughs> it's really like really lovely. Yeah. Um, what else do I think about the fringe? Uh, but I think that in the United Kingdom, we are very poor at recognizing what is really good about things that we do, having been to like other festivals globally the edinburgh fringe is uh incredible if nothing else via its size and its scope mm. the second biggest one melbourne uh, starts at 6 p.m yeah you know you could have you could have seen eight shows yeah if you were really <laughs> like going for it by that time um and across not just comedy but music dance literature like that time in august I just discover it a new festival. You know, there's like a TV festival that every year I go up there, there's like this other festival also going on. There's there's another one. You know, you've got the lit, you know, I was like, it's so, uh, like, uh, there's so much of it. Um, And there's so many people doing such creative and original work there. Uh, it, It is the best of something in the world. It really, really, really is. It is, and I, it breaks my heart that it's so hard sometimes mm. to say stuff about that, about the United Kingdom in the 21st century. Mm. It is truly like incredible and it needs to be looked after. Uh, it needs to be protected. Like, did you know we can like the Fringe Society, uh, who you know controls so much of, of the festival, mm-hmm. you know, we can all vote for who they are. Yeah. I didn't know this recently. <laughs> I was like, I can do what? <laughs> you know, we talk we talk about it as though they're like, you know, dark wizards somewhere, and you can you can stand to be that, and you can like help be a part of the uh, the people who award the sort of the prizes and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah. maybe this is to do with uh, having just entered into my thirties um, six years ago, but I'm now um, <laughs> like, oh, I'm I'm so much more like thinking, oh, well, we, you know, I should be being more civic 
I suppose you can be like a member. Is it, it's annoying it costs a fiver, but like and all the comics listen to this next time. Be spend that spend that fiver um, in like July or June to become a member of the Fringe Society, and then seek out who's standing, mm. or stand yourself to be um, in that performer role on the committee, or like vice versa. Like I'm always like we we as comedians love to moan. Oh, we love to moan. And we, do you know what we really love to moan about? We love to moan about the fringe. Oh, love to moan about the fringe. But then almost all of us don't engage in that, uh, in the process mm. of making it better. Yes. Um, or being honest about what is good about it as well as what's bad about it. Mm. And so the, the free fringe is an incredible thing. Um, and it's a way that people can not just not lose money, but can be fairly paid for the their labor mm-hmm. um and i think it should be protected extended i think the real fringe in many ways or the spirit of the fringe is best encapsulated by that that's not to say that like larger venues don't have a wonderful role to play yeah. um p- particularly with some more complex forms of um performance that need so much more than like simple stand-up mm-hmm. but um yeah join the fringe society and uh vote or indeed stand um for making it a, a, a better thing it is the best of its type in the world yeah um and that's incredible and long may it continue so we've talked a lot about um philosophy what are the uh, philosophies of your own that you've developed oh god with you <laughs> um uh it, it do be like that sometimes um <laughs> ooh, that is uh, a good question um i think that stand-up comics are given a nice answer to the type of existential uh, worries and dread that can happen about meaning and purpose. I think one of the reasons why stand-up comedy is so uh, addictive and so like consuming um, is that it gives a reason for the things that happen to you. Um, I think lots of creative processes can do that. And I don't think it's just creative processes that are needed for this. But when something happens in your life, particularly if it's a bad thing, mm. you already have this process, this this thing um, where you can be like, right, I can capture this um, and I can make a good thing out of it. I can make people laugh about it. When you are reading something, when you were talking to someone, it's almost impossible to be bored by reality because you are you've you are undergoing hardcore training about how to make reality uh, fascinating, interesting, exciting, useful. And so this kind of like the, the posh philosophical word for it is like ennui, mm. this kind of boredom that can sneak into uh, life if you're repeating the same kind of things kind of every day with certain types of work or with uh relationships that you have or something like that like you are given this like special gift where like every experience that you have you're sort of trained to make it incredible or to make it seem like it has a a thing that you can do with it right Mm -hmm. so you can have that as a writer if you're incredibly impressive you can take your everyday experiences and turn them into dance it's really nice that stand-up comics can have access to that Mm. in a way that i hope for any non-stand-up comics listening you can find your own sort of way of that 
like there's an incredible book by Mihai um, Chimdegemski. Um, I forgive me for his awful for the awful pronunciation, but the, the book is called Flow, and it's uh, the the science of satisfying um, life essentially. Mm-hmm. And this idea of flow, this sense that like when you're having an experience, you are uh, just fully immersed into it. You are really experiencing it for um, in a satisfying way. Mm-hmm. Like comedians are very good at finding flow like either whether that's on stage or whether that's in day-to-day life Mm. um like flow is still the opposite of boredom you know people sometimes talk about it as being like in the zone like athletes can get it sometimes where like they say things like um i don't think i just do Mm. um this sense that you kind of lose yourself within an activity um and um, mihaj chimemsky talks about well what are the exact types of thing that an activity requires in order to get the sense of flow musicians often get it when um they're either improvising a new piece or they're playing a new piece in a, in a way that just transforms them into this other place this sense of you don't think you just do mm-hmm. there's a sort of a, a spirituality to that don't think just do and there is a real moment like on stage where when you've got that audience sort of with you, it feels like you're surfing a wave or or playing an instrument where each word that you pick next, you're, you're not consciously picking it. It's like, it's coming to you, you're in flow. You can't like, you can't think about the stone in your shoe or what you have for breakfast or what you're doing the next day. It's just so completely immersive. And what you're doing next is just working, 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 and that sense of, flow that sense of ecstatic just being rather than worrying or thinking or having dread or anxiety is like an incredible experience and if you can find your way of that within stand-up or if you can find your your thing Mm. um there is a artificial distinction between work and play so uh some things are dreadful and we call them work Mm. And we need to be compensated for them, right? But sometimes the things that people do for play seem identical to work, mm-hmm. right? So for play, some people will spend lots of time fixing engines. They'll get into their flow state via that. Yeah. Um, yet also sometimes that can be work and be awful work, dirty work, work that you find like really hard and difficult to do. Mm-hmm. But if you can construct um, your mind and your experience to get into flow states with it, and some things are much better for getting to flow than others. Mm-hmm. I think that is about as close as I've ever got to uh, what the meaning of it all is, I think. Mm. Um, and that is, forgive me for being <laughs> an absolute monstrous, pretentious wanker, but you did <laughs> ask me what my philosophy was. So it's something to do with that, I think. If you can get into flow, mm. um, that is that is ecstasy. It's another word for it sometimes. What so far then in your experience have been the best and worst moments in comedy? Ooh, very nice. Um, well, your best moments are always those flow moments. Yes. I mean, that follows on quite easily. Um, yeah, that being absolutely, for, for me, it's always always in the more improvisational bits, right. uh, like true flow. Mm. Like I do a lot of hosting, I do a lot of kind of emceeing. Yeah. And like sometimes it's just each, each thing, you don't think you just do and you are like overwhelmed by like like the laughter response and it just keeps coming and it keeps going and it's really 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 nice uh it's not always nice (laughs) in the sense that um 
you always get the difficult shows. Mm-hmm. Um, for whatever reason, you've not taken that audience into your world. Um, they've not gone with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, like, I was just telling this to a friend on the phone last night, actually. I was like, forgive me a slightly um, blue like reference. When it's not working, it sometimes feels like you've had too much to drink, but you're still trying to have sex. <laughs> and like you're staring at the audience in their eyes and they, they, they want it to be working sometimes. And it, it's just not working. But, you know, you, you, you've started and you have to keep going. And, <laughs> you, you know, you'll be saying things like, oh, no, it happens to a lot of comedians. And it, it just it's just like, oh, like you're trying to like, you know, they're feeling not right. And you're like, oh, it's just it's really like a horrible, horrible feeling. I mean, the best person to explain this, you know, I was a bit rude about Seinfeld earlier, but he says that uh, people have two greatest fears. Um, the second greatest fear that people always list is death. And you're like, oh, no, that's a bit heavy, Seinfeld. All right. And you go, what's their first greatest fear? And they always go public speaking. <laughs> so like <laughs> the, the feeling of it going badly when you're speaking to a, a group of people yeah. for millions of people is worse than worse than death, right? And then he very wryly says, if you're at a funeral, so many people would prefer to be in the casket than they would do in the eulogy. It's a very nice way to sort of yeah. summarize it. Yeah. But like that feeling of it just being like, just not, not working. You do, you feel insane because you look insane. Yeah. Because it's, <laughs> yeah. it needs to have, it needs to have the laughter to it. Yeah. Like if, if there's no laughter there, it's not just that it's not working. It, it doesn't exist. Yeah the performance requires the second half of the conversation. Yeah. You've come to see a dialogue, but what you just see is a person speaking yeah. into a void. And it looks identical to having not written any comedy. Yeah. It's like you're talking to a car park full of empty cars. It's like talking to a car park full of empty cars. That's probably the analogy I probably Call should back. use. Call back. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, yeah, <very laughs> nice. Yeah. Those will be the, the, the deaths on stage, I suppose. Yeah. Those are some of the more negative ones. Yeah, what do people normally say for that? The worst experiences? Um, stag do's. Uh, yeah. <laughs> do you know what? I think that actually, if you want my opinion on the, on the matter, stag do is one level up from worst. So I think the difference between bombing and dying mm. is the difference between dealing with the stag do and dealing with uh, silence. Mm. So to die is to, is to have nothing. Like yeah. if you have a rowdy or a heckly crowd, oh, yeah, horrible, right? You know, the, the classic stag or hen, right? And they're interrupting and you're having to sort of roast them back or like yeah. that can sometimes not go well, but at least, at least it happened. Mm. You were, you were treated like a person doing the thing yeah. like you were, you know, it's the difference between, you know, being punched or slapped, right? Right. You know, like you're, you know, you're, you're slapped as a child. You're not seen as a full adult, like when you're punched. You know, this is the turn the other cheek metaphor, isn't it? Like the supposed real origin of that is that when you turn the other cheek, it's so that the person comes back to you and punches you as an equal mm. rather than slapping you like a child. Mm. And when you are, you know, we have those dickheads in the crowd who are the, the stag dudes, at least they're registering you as a human being, admittedly not one that's supposed to be doing what they're supposed to be doing. But the silence, the silence of the folded arms and that look of like, like almost like pained, like I want it, I wanted this to be right. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously I've got no idea cause I've never died on stage, but, um, 
<laughs> and just you know listening to the things that other comedians have said but like <laughs> the difference between bombing and dying is, is huge mm. i think to bomb is you know people like smiled through it or maybe they heckled like booing yeah booing is kinder than silence um always <laughs> uh yeah i think anyway but that's not to say that stag and hens are an ideal format for comedy alex how can we find out about you how can we find out where you're playing next i am on the internet i am at https <laughs> colon forward forward slash um www.alexfarrow.com um, and then you can see my calendar um, for if you ever wanted to burgle me, presumably. But um, if you're trying to burgle me, I only put the good stuff on the calendar. But almost all of my live performance, you can find that. I, I'm a user of YouTube um, if you'd like to see, particularly the crowd, crowd work stuff. Mm. I think the crowd work stuff uh, I do, I'm very proud of. Uh, I don't put a lot of it up there, but when I think it's interesting, when I think, particularly when I think it demonstrates something unique about what it means to be in a crowd or yeah. uh, be a real human being, I think there's a great opportunity to find out what people really think and feel through crowd work. Mm. You don't have to just say who's having sex with whom and why their job makes them yeah. uh, a loser or whatever. You can, there's a real honesty you can get from this, from being observed by a hundred people as you respond to people yeah. there's a uh the adrenaline produces a sort of kind of truth and sometimes you can capture that crowd work and it's really cool yeah. so yeah youtube alex farrow and then the internet <laughs> the world wide web <laughs> my last question the same question i ask all of my guests how would you summarize comedy in a nutshell comedy in a nutshell uh thomas hobbs said that laughter was an expulsion of glory from the body um and i think that uh comedy is an incredible and essential part of the human experience and that if you are not consuming that uh or not seeking it out in your day-to-day -day life that's to me like saying you're not interested in food or love or sex or romance it is just as important just as special and it is a glorious glorious thing alex thanks so much it's been an absolute pleasure and privilege thank you oh pleasure mark thanks man 